You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Hello, everyone. Um, I want to welcome you to this panel discussion event entitled Why Gender Matters to Internal Displacement, hosted by the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI, and we're delighted to see so many of you joining us from around the world. I want to start by introducing myself. My name is Megan. I'm a senior research fellow at HPG, focusing on gender justice and humanitarian action, feminist humanitarian action through an intersectional lens. Now, as we get started, um, we have a few points of housekeeping. First of all, the chat box is open just below this live stream. So please feel free to say hello and introduce yourselves there. Please also add your questions in the chat box along with your name um, for the Q&A session. If you're on Twitter, we'll be using the hashtag internal displacement, all one word for this event. And my colleague Sarah will share that and the relevant Twitter handles to use in the chat now. This event is also being recorded, so we'll upload the video and audio on the ODI webpage in a couple of days time. So HPG is in the midst of a two-year project examining the impact of displacement on gendered norms, roles, and power relationships. And this is why we've convened this event. We're doing case studies produced in partnership with local researchers and organizations in Pakistan, Uganda, and Colombia. In fact, our case study on Pakistan, which focuses on internal displacement in the former federally administered tribal areas and was led by my colleague, Simon Levine, is launching today. Sarah will share it in the chat box for anyone who wants to give it a read and share it with your networks. And I'm gonna walk you through two key findings that are emerging from this project so far. The first is that the gendered impacts of displacement, including internal displacement, are complex and rarely straightforward. In Pakistan particularly, our research makes a powerful case that the upheaval of displacement can bring about profound struggles, but also opportunities for women that were not there before. And this flies in the face of received knowledge about women and children being universally the most vulnerable in all cases, but it's not yet reflected in humanitarian policy and practice. So we argue that aid actors need to learn to presume less, consult more with affected populations, and be prepared to support opportunities as well as mitigate harms. Secondly, and this will sound familiar to many gender experts, gender-based risks and challenges that are observed in crises echo those seen before, after, and beyond crisis settings. That is to say, people marginalized by reason of their gender, and that includes women, non-binary people, and certain men, live in a constant state of crisis that transcends humanitarian settings themselves. They're exacerbated by conflict and disaster, certainly, but they're not confined to those moments or spaces alone. A feminist approach to humanitarian action, therefore, has to mean working across the silos of humanitarianism, development, and peace building. Staying siloed within traditional humanitarianism can only limit us in our understanding of the risks and opportunities in front of us. It also has to mean working locally with women's and LGBTQ plus organizations on consultative, grassroots, local and contextualized responses. So as I said, the Pakistan report is available now from this project, along with our review of existing knowledge on gender and displacement 
And do watch out for subsequent case studies on Colombia and Uganda, as well as a final global report. Now that piece of research on Pakistan also speaks to our motivating ethos today. That is, that if we want to find durable solutions for all internally displaced people, we need to understand gendered norms and relations better. A record 50.8 million people were displaced within their own countries worldwide as of the end of 2019, according to the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. Displacement affects all dimensions of life, security and exposure to violence, access to services, livelihoods, housing, social and political engagement, with implications felt in distinctive ways by people of different genders. Last year, the UN Secretary General convened a high-level panel on internal displacement to look beyond the traditional humanitarian responses and formulate longer-term policy proposals and ways forward for displaced people. But our work shows that gender is still frequently sidelined from those conversations. Our findings are showing that durable solutions will not be possible without understanding and addressing gendered inequities. So today, we're going to challenge assumptions and highlight gaps around what internal displacement means for men, women, and gender minorities, and how humanitarian actors and the international community can and should respond. So it's my pleasure to introduce our panel of accomplished speakers. So first, we have Maria Alabde, who is a Syrian feminist activist and executive director of Women Now for Development. Maria has led Women Now to become an impressive network of centers for women's empowerment across Syria and in Lebanon and Turkey as well. And these operate as safe spaces for women. Her work links up struggles for gender justice and women's rights with struggles for peace and democracy. Then we have Elizabeth Ferris, research professor at the Institute for the Study of International Migration at Georgetown University and member of the expert advisory group to the high level panel on internal displacement. Elizabeth is a world leading expert on internal displacement and its effects. And in 2016, she was also senior advisor to the UN General Assembly's Summit for Refugees and Migrants in New York. And we do have with us, though it appears she's maybe having a power cut at the moment, I'll introduce her anyway, she'll be back with us shortly. Seema Samar, an Afghan women's and human rights advocate and activist and member of the high level panel on internal displacement. She's also a special envoy of the Afghanistan president and state minister for human rights and international affairs. And Seema has a long history of senior roles, including as minister of women's affairs and a member of the UN secretary general's high level advisory board on mediation. So thanks first of all to all three of you, hopefully Seema will be with us again shortly um, for taking the time to share your expertise with HPG and with everyone listening in. So I'm gonna start with a question for Maria. The Syrian conflict has displaced more than 6.5 million people within Syria's borders. Women Now for Development works with internally displaced communities and especially with women in Syria. What are the gendered impacts of, of internal displacement that you've seen? Um, thank you very much, Megan, uh, for your introduction and uh, for the impressive research that I have been very happy to go through during the weekend. Um, the, I would like here to highlight maybe two or three points very quickly. Uh, first of all, when you said uh, we have been working with displaced women, actually, we have been the displaced women 
half of women now team have went through the displacement. From eight centers, we only have two now. Six has been destroyed and people have been uh, displaced. So, so yeah, so it is something that for us, it's very important to, to remind that those people can be us anytime. And there are us, the woman who has been displaced, the man and the children, there are us. It is why for us, it's very important also to talk about gender impact, but also gender perspective. Also how women or how the gender impact the perspective of the people. So we have been recently, uh, we have re uh, published a report uh, on um, uh, the how women read the reality and, uh, and how they read the actual violence in Syria. And something mentioned by uh, uh, um, a big number of women was the violence of nostalgia. They call it as a kind of violence. So I think the trauma of the displacement is one of the biggest trauma that people through, uh, go through. And as you said, that will impact even their uh, social and political engagement. I have been working with amazing women who has been engaged locally. And then after the displacement, they lost this. Uh, um, some of them, not all of them, but because of multiple reasons, because they found themselves responsible for the protection and education for the children, uh, for the livelihood, as you said. But what we, we have seen have especially impacted women is document, uh, document. When people are refugee in other countries, sometimes they have access to alternative documents. But they, when they are within their countries, are losing this and this impact women specifically because uh, she can be married or divorced or having children without any documentation. So she is always on a very vulnerable situation. Uh, also, when I'm talking about gender perspective, uh, it's also how how they read uh, also the the gender um, how I say it, their gender perspective. Uh, I just have been reading an article about um, unfortunately Syrian mercenaries that have been that has been killed outside Syria today, and a story of one young man who is 22 who has been killed recently in Azerbaijan. And I knew from 10 years that the Syrian women have been talking about education, their boys, so they don't become mercenary because they want alternative for the boys. So this is something that also the women have this reading of they know what will happen to the boys if they go on without uh, education. Uh, finally, in terms of lack of protection, I just want to come back of something we are seeing now very much uh, in Syria, especially between displaced community, suicides between women and sometimes even addiction because the lack of protection the only way they are facing violence sometimes they they they, they completely lose all their um, the way of protection or even their resilience so they want to commit suicide and something very very serious thank you thank you maria now i think sima has joined us again Yes, I am. Excellent, great. My next question is for you. So you, you may not have heard all that Maria's had to say, um, but I'd be interested to know what the gendered impacts of internal displacement have been that you've seen in Afghanistan and you know how to, to what extent you heard her, what, um, what parallels you see with, with the Syrian situation. Um. Good morning and good afternoon, and uh, it's a pleasure to be part of this uh, session. Uh, I think it's almost common uh, in most of the countries 
because uh, the displacement actually, and also the conflict, of course, if the displacement either by be caused by conflict or caused by a natural disaster, both of them have a different impact on gender, uh, particularly on on uh, in countries conservative countries like us, uh, it's sideline women. Uh, but I think it's also, if you look at the impact on the different role of, of for example, of women uh, when they come to the uh, closer to the bigger city, uh, the role is changed uh, somehow. And I think, uh, uh, but the problem is that in our case, they try to say that uh, we respect the, the culture, we respect the uh, the tradition of Afghanistan and we respect the, the religion of the country so we don't really involve and talk too much with women. And that is something that really sideline women more uh, unfortunately. And also the other, uh, the other thing that we see in Afghanistan a lot because of the uh, increased poverty and because of the continuation of the conflict in the country and because of uh, uh, lack of rule of law in most of those areas, the um, child marriage and also forced marriage are, are increased uh, between women, uh, between the female um, uh, member of the family. Uh, of course, usually when they are too poor and, and poverty is increased, then the girl is always a victim to be sold in order to feed the other children uh, within the family. That is one significant uh, negative impact, but there is also a positive impact because it depends that on the projects that the humanitarian or different NGOs who who work with the uh, with the uh, IDPs also. the The other point that I would like to mention is that unfortunately, even if it's protracted IDPs, we have IDPs who stay in the same place in the same camp for 20 years. And then that is also looked as uh, rather than, uh, looked as, as a humanitarian case rather than uh, to include them with the development programs and projects. So usually it's it's the male member of the family who decide about the everything. And recently with a lot of pressure, we are put, pushing um, the inclusion of women in some of the decision-making uh, issue. And they are the one. I mean, the the women are the majority of the of the displaced uh, people, but the gender minority, unfortunately, because of the again because of the lack of rule of law and because of lack of protection, they are in very difficult situation when it comes to displacement. Because when they live in the in the uh, villages, they are. I mean, they are scattered in the village, in the camps. They are very. I mean, they are very connected and very close. I mean, in a small uh, piece of land, um, uh, few families or 10 families are living. So they have more problem and nobody recognized their need and their agenda um, that they face the problem and try to be, uh, more, some people are really violent against those uh, gender minority groups. And that is something that we, still have a problem in Afghanistan to talk about them. I start to say that the men and women and others, but not clearly that, um, you know, uh, 
uh, different um, kind of, because I will be blamed. I mean, I try to say these things and raise the issue. The other day I said that they are the reality of our, of, uh, of our life and we cannot ignore them. And that is uh, something that we, uh, not enough attention has been paid to their cause and their, their needs. I stop here. Thank you, Seema. That was all really fascinating. Um, I'm going to switch back to Maria briefly. And everyone listening, do please add your questions in the chat box so we can continue once, once I've exhausted all of my questions for the panelists. Um, but Maria, in your opinion, how should humanitarian programs and responses take into account these differing experiences based on gender? And to what extent do you think gender is included in current programming and practice? Yeah, um, I, I just want to continue on my previous um, uh, introduction. I just want to say, according to my own observation, I don't have data, but most of the fighters are coming from internal displaced camps. So there's something we need to keep in mind uh, also when we are talking about gender. And, and usually most of the camps are, are composed, as I said, my, my colleague, by women and children. So this man are really are very young boys, actually. So it is something I, I really want to, uh, to take into account. So in terms of programs, um, actually, I very much uh, appreciate your uh, your point on the positive impact uh, on them. However, for me, it's difficult to to um, to include it. It is something we have seen. We we uh, even at Women Now we were doing uh, a study on. Uh, uh, on women displaced in uh, on neighboring country, but that is almost internal displacement. And women express this, but we were very much, we didn't know how to express it because we know for the host country, it, if we said this, they would not consider this as a reason for the woman not to come back to their country. So we also have this, this responsibility of toward the woman, for sure, uh, we need to have our honesty, but. Those women are feeling better, but they are still on a very vulnerable condition. They don't, as I said, they uh, maybe socially they have they got some advantage, but uh, they are still not recognized. They are still on a situation when their children is, are not registered. Their situation that they don't have a legal situation, sure. so we still consider them as vulnerable, uh, even though for. So yeah, so for still the programs for me, even though they are very much destined toward protection, but they are not ensuring enough protection, especially in terms of documentation. Uh, the pro most of the program are very short term, and I think there is no um, investment in women and girls potential. Uh, through our women centers, we have seen how women can evolve through years, and some of them became the focal point of their camps in, in a situation of disaster. So investing in, uh, in this is also uh, very important. Uh, in our last paper on women and uh, condition inside Syria, internally displaced women and COVID-19, we have seen even though the girls have been taking more pressure than the boys in terms of a load of uh, um, uh, helping their mothers at home and uh, all of this. But we also have seen a huge potential uh, of the girls in helping uh, organizing the life of the camps. So I think, uh, as you have mentioned on research, we have a huge potential that need to be targeted through long-term program, but also inclusive, letting the women and the girls led the process. 
Thank you. And I really like that framing of, of investment and potential. Uh, I think that's really powerful. Um, I'm going to turn to Beth now and building on Maria and Sima's observations, how much consideration would you say there has been for gender in policy and practice to date, and especially when it comes to the durable solutions conversation? Yeah, if you look over the last 30 years, there's been a growing awareness of the importance of gender and gender is incorporated in probably most humanitarian programs. You know, in the beginning, the whole focus was on women as vulnerable, women as at risk and addressing those particular needs. Gradually, the discourse changed to talk about women's needs and resources, but still, I think the dominant approach is to look at the particular needs, protection needs, violence against women, and so on, and really concentrate on that in humanitarian programming. Also, for about 30 years now, when you talk about gender and displacement, you're really talking about women. The word gender has been synonymous with women rather than looking at the gendered impacts of these situations on men and boys, as both Maria and Seema has mentioned, that's, that's something important. But, but also, you know, it's really difficult to generalize about 25 million internally displaced women. The situation facing women in Ukraine and El Salvador and Yemen are so different that it's hard, those generalizations, you know, lose a lot of, I think we really need a contextualized approach to really look at the context and major differences between women living in camp settings, those who are dispersed in either rural or urban areas, that has a big impact on their access to services, their ability to function and so on. Another problem I think we have generally is a tendency to see displacement as static. You're displaced and then you're not. In reality, especially when displacement lasts for years, these, these movements are dynamic. I mean, in some cases, people move back and forth, they go back or they go someplace else or they return, or they go live with an aunt. A study done in El Salvador showed that internally displaced people were displaced some 20 times within the country before they sought asylum in, in another country. So we don't really understand much about that dynamic. We also know, and there's really shown in your, your Pakistan study, Megan, but we, we also see that gender roles change, family dynamics change. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's much easier for a woman to get a job as a domestic worker, for example, while her husband, who has traditionally been the head of the family, sits idle and at home. And that changes not only family dynamics and intergenerational dynamics, but power relationships and expectations. When you think about solutions for women, and maybe just to focus mainly on return, which is something that most IDP women aspire to someday, you know, what's the impact of that experience of displacement when they go back? For women, say, in Afghanistan who've been displaced for 10 or 15 years, things have changed for them and things have probably changed back home as well in terms of how they will fit back into this. It isn't a question of just picking up where you left off. Um, and in particular, when you look at women in return, I think we need to pay much more attention to housing, land, and property issues. Land everywhere is problematic. There's conflicts of all sorts, you know, questions around land titling, somebody else living there. How long have you been gone? Do you have money to rebuild? How much debt will you take on? Um, but for women, there's this particular difficulty that a lot of the inheritance laws make it different, difficult for widows or divorced women to, to inherit property. So 
say that the husband dies or goes off or and the woman goes back with her kids, you know, she may not get access to her home or her property. And I think, you know, understanding some of the housing, land and property issues makes it clear this isn't just an issue for humanitarian actors to deal with. You know, humanitarians are great at organizing logistics and doing programs, particularly in camps. But when it comes to providing legal assistance to help women reclaim their, their land, you know, humanitarians really don't have that expertise. That's why I think a real challenge, and maybe we can talk about that later, is how to move this whole issue of internal displacement out of the solely humanitarian response mm -hmm. in the long term development thinking where we can have people with expertise on land tenure, for example, who spent careers studying this and working with local communities really take the lead and not humanitarians who are doing the best they can, but often don't have those particular talents. So I think in some that we've come a long way in recognizing the importance of gender, but we still need to be aware of how different gender situations are and to look at these dynamics of displacement, including solutions. Thank you. Um, we're going to do our, our, our first of two little lightning rounds where I pose the same question to all three of you. So the question at this point is, what do you think is the greatest barrier to the inclusion of gender in conversations and policies on long-term solutions to internal displacement? And I'll start, I think, with Seema. Um, well, I think it, as, as Beth said, said it's a different countries with different uh, social structure and political structure. Uh, we also try to include a lot the gender issue and, and when we call gender in Afghanistan, it's always women as, as uh, in the other places as well. Uh, but I think it still requires, in my personal view, first of all, a strong political will to push for this issue by local authority and by the government, uh, uh, the, uh, let's say the central government, whoever they are. Secondly, I think, again, it's also belong to the uh, service providers uh, if they have really strong commitment to gender issue and they believe on it. Because we see some of the local NGOs, for example, or sometimes it's even the international NGOs because they are afraid not to be um, opposed by, by the local community, by the, by the IDPs themselves, and not to be blamed on promoting immoralities between the people. So they don't touch women issue and gender issue. But I think overall, we need to make this whole component strong because the majority of the internal uh, IDPs in Afghanistan, I'm talking about Afghanistan, but when I saw also some in Sudan long ago, uh, the majority are women. And then because the, the children is naturally is connected with the mothers rather than being with the fathers. And usually the men either died or they are involved in, in, in fighting. In our case, for example, in, the, in the, some part of the country, the men are going to work in Iran and the women are left behind or going if they have a small piece of land back in their, in their provinces uh, during, the, during the harvest time, they go back in order to collect uh, the harvest. So they are, uh, the majority are women and it, the plan and the program should be based on their need 
and again, it's humanitarian. Of course, it's it's much uh, progress has been done. I remember when I was working in a camp in Pakistan, which is not internally displaced, but it is refugees. Nobody was talking about women yeah. in late eighties, in early nineties. Nobody, nobody is willing to. I mean, I was fighting for contraception, and nobody was willing to give. Still, it's it's the case. I mean, they are very, very um, careful in order to provide con contraception or talk about the emergency contraception because they they feel uh, to be blamed for uh, promoting prostitution within when you get the emergency contraception. These are very, very sensitive and very much close and related to women, unfortunately or fortunately. So these are still the issues that we need to lobby for this and need to put in the agenda for, uh, for uh, health provider or for any humanitarian program. So this is something that we need to, to also focus. And the other issue that uh, I, I think is, is a problem in, in most of the, the IDP camps is the, uh, the water issue. It's not only in Afghanistan, but also in the other part of it. So that their access to water and sanitation is really key. If there's no water, the sanitation is also be, is getting very uh, problematic and, and very weak, uh, in fact. And that is something that we also have to look. And it's very, very close related to women because women are the one who collect the water and deal with the water uh, consumption in the family. So I think these are the points that still need to be, to be pushed strongly in order to promote equality and, and let's say gender-based need uh, humanitarian provision. Excellent. Maria, same question. What's the greatest Thank barrier? Wow, there is a lot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think Sima covered a lot. And I really appreciate Beth Elizabeth's point on uh, the fact that um, uh, displacement is not static. That is something that we need really to, to, keep, uh, to keep in mind. It changes, uh, the camps move. And also the point on return and housing lending on the same research I was uh, speaking about, I think some of the women were saying we don't want to come back, but some of them also, the biggest question for them, where to come back? The home is destroyed. And even if there is any, um, uh, any uh, replacement, but the, um, the registration was on the name of my husband, my father. So most of everything in terms of housing was on the name, is on the name of the man. So what the women will do when they will return. Um, a huge barrier for me, uh, I don't know what is the situation in other countries, but for Syria is access. The humanitarian actor doesn't have access to internal displacement. Yeah, exactly. uh, especially in terms of most of the camps are informal. So mm -hmm. uh, it is something that I think we need to have a, to go and challenge the system and challenge even within, I don't know, the Security Council, the UN system, how we can access uh, internally displaced people who are still living into very dangerous, actually, the, the issue also with internal displacement and uh, refugee that the internal displacement are still also under bombardment. We have seen in Syria, some camps that have been bombarded. Uh, yeah. 
they are most of them are informal so women doesn't especially in terms of uh, reproductive health doesn't have access to anything and we have seen women who, who cannot go to any hospital or the nearest hospital is very far so which all the points that Sima mentioned are also true for me so but i'm just adding a new front so for us uh, especially for pregnant women it was an issue that uh, uh, continued to come back and i think my last point would be uh, um something we need to overcome is using uh, gender women and protection as synonym so i think all of us have given example about how gender is not only about women and women is not only about protection when we are discussing women or gender issue so yeah that is and the, my last very last point would be in terms of local solutions and because we have seen a humanitarian actor coming in force with very strict policy in terms of combating SGBV. But when you don't have a police to report to, when you are in an area that is completely out of nowhere, how you apply it. So we need local solution and we need to take into account that sometimes we can put women in a greater danger. So we need to, to adapt our solutions. Thank you very much. Thanks. Beth, same question. Yeah, I'm just going to highlight one thing, building on what Seema and Maria said. And I think we need to do a lot more on the issue of consultation, participation of displaced women. I mean, in the humanitarian world, we talk about this a lot, the importance of consultation. But, you know, what, what does that consist of? Is it back and forth or is it agencies saying this is what we're planning? What do you think? I mean, how do you engage women in a real participatory power sharing type of process. I mean, I think we really need to work on that to find out systems so that refugee or displaced women's organizations are representative, that they have a seat at the table, that they're involved in planning and in deciding on solutions. So I, I think participation of displaced women is really key. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think we've covered a lot of areas there, but that's a really, really interesting set of ideas around what needs to change. And I think my next couple of questions are focused on, on, on where next and, and the tools at our disposal. So the first question I have there is, is, is for Beth, and, and that is what inter international processes and tools are there for greater inclusion of gender in response to internal displacement? And where do we need further action? Yeah, there are tons of tools and guidelines that are available. I mean, if you just Google gender humanitarian action, you'll find more than you can possibly read. You know, there's a 388 page guide, for example, developed by the Interagency Standing Committee on gender-based violence and humanitarian interventions. It just has everything in there, anything you could possibly think of in terms of you know, sanitation and gender or livelihoods and gender. There's a lot of written guidance and collection of good practices out there. You know, I think that when, when you look at what's needed, I think we need to do much more on these women who are living in non-camp settings. You know, camps have lots of problems and it's really great that we're moving away from refugee and IDP camps as, as matters of policy. I mean, yet at least in camps, you know, there's somebody who knows what's going on there. It's harder for people to 
fall between the cracks and then when people are dispersed, particularly in large urban settings living among the population, it can be difficult to identify particular needs or to distribute food items or non-food items that are needed. So I think we need to think much more intentionally about you know, the issues of consultation, participation with displaced women, how to function in non-camp settings. Maybe the answer is not to single out IDPs, but to look at the communities as a whole, which is a real problem for humanitarian actors, which often have a mandate to work with the displaced, but not with the urban poor. You know, but somehow we need to figure out in that constellation ways of ensuring that women can participate, um, that they have solutions that are tailored to their particular context. This isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. You know, something that works well in El Salvador probably isn't even going to work very well in Colombia, even though they speak the same language, because very different patterns and trajectories of displacement. Thanks. Thank you. And then Seema. The high-level panel was set up last year to support solutions to internal displacement and raise the profile of internal displacement as a key area of concern in global affairs. What could the role of the panel be in ensuring gender becomes a critical pillar of durable solutions? Well, I think it's a good initiative. Unfortunately, due to COVID, we were not able to do a lot of our traveling and uh, consultation face-to-face. But still, we are, uh, we are collecting a lot of documents, at least in Afghanistan, when some of the NGOs, including the UN agencies who did the uh, consultation with IDPs, uh, I was part of the, when they were making their policy, I was included on that, but could not really join the, uh, the actual uh, consultation. But at least I see the, the report and I, I could understand the, uh, the uh, situation. Uh, I do hope that we could come with a strong recommendation in order to change the overall. I mean, first of all, uh, I will, uh, as a one of the individual, I will insist on the uh, prevention and including on accountability on violation of, of IHL, uh, uh, international human rights law and humanitarian law. Because what I see practically in, in my life, I saw in, in Afghanistan and I see even today, is the continuation of the culture of impunity on these war crimes and crimes against humanity on uh, displacement and causing their displacement. So it is uh, one of the issue, uh, I'm not sure if the others would like that, but that is something that I see. And uh, of course it pushed the, uh, also promote the um, political will in order to reduce that. Again, the, the second po point that I would like to mention, the connection between the um, conflict-related IDPs and also disaster-related IDPs. I see in, in my country that because of the conflict, the urban setting in Afghanistan or the uh, land grabbing in Afghanistan, uh, the people just come and pick the piece of land without really looking on the disaster uh, um, impact in the future. We just had a bad flood in, in one of the city in Parwan um, a few months ago uh, during the summertime. That was happened in the early morning when, in the middle of the night when the people were, were uh, uh, sleeping. 
and it killed a lot of people and a lot of destruction there. And if there's, a, if there's no conflict, the people will not, or the urban uh, planning or the urban setting will not be in a way to put the housing or the people, uh, the town on the, uh, on the areas which is possibly would be on the way to the, the flooding. So this kind of a, a connection between all these, is, these issues uh, is, is really something that we should look at it and then uh, we try to push on prevention of conflict. The, the other issue that I insist in that is, is more uh, on the, on the, have more information on the topic than I do is that um, we need to look at the issue and connect the whole issue with the um, development and, and peace. And that is something uh, IDP should not always be treated as only humanitarian emergency cases. And I am saying this because unfortunately what I see in the last 40 years in my country, it is always emergency. For 40 years, it's emergency. And that is not really uh, useful. And that does not really help to reduce the suffering of the people who are uh, in IDP position or uh, displaced already from their uh, place of origin. And the final point that I uh, would like to mention is that we need to look at the recommendations as Beth said that we don't have a one prescription for everything. Uh, as we say in Afghanistan, we don't need paracetamol for everything, for all the pain, for the headache, for the pain in the, in the, in the back, for, the, for maybe uh, teeth or, or everything. So we need to look at the specific countries and the cause of the, of the displacement and look uh, on practical implementable solutions to really change the reality in the life of the people in the grounds in different countries. So that is, uh, I think Pat can say more on this rather than I, but we are both in a, in the same boat somehow in a different role. I'm a member of the panel and she's a member of the advisory board who has more knowledge on this issue. But I think these are the points that I, at least as a member of the, uh, the panel, uh, would like to see on the, on the report in order to make a practical, implementable, cost-effective um, recommendations. Thank you, Seema. Um, we're now at the end of my list of questions, so we can open it up to the Q&A. Um, Beth, if you want to comment on the, the role of the panel, we'd love to hear from you, but otherwise. Yeah, let me just make one, one comment, and that is, I think we really need to look at women's roles in resolving conflicts, women's roles as negotiators, mediators at the peace table. You know, the statistics are pretty bad. I mean, it's between 6 and 13% of all negotiators, mediators, signatories are women, and yet displaced women have such enormous stakes in what, what happens in any kind of agreement. You know, so I think, you know, you know, resolving conflicts is a way of preventing the next one. So I think conflict pre prevention and resolution really depends on women's participation in more than just lip service. Very well said. All right, so I'm gonna to turn to some questions from people listening in. The very first one we have 
is from Luisa Yasukawa, who is a research associate from the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. So we're very pleased to have um, IDMC joining us from Geneva. And her question is, would the panel be able to highlight some more examples of good practice in which gender disaggregated data was effectively used to inform and improve programming on internal displacement? So I'll leave it to the three of you to decide if you have any stories to share on that. I don't have my, my, my notes right in front of me, but it's really important that we have not only gender disaggregated data, but also by age. I mean, the needs of adolescent girls are different than those of older women. And when you have that, it enables more effective uh, programs, you know, whether it's programs for education or for violence prevention, you, you need that kind of information. And I, I certainly I've heard that organizations that have that have used it in programming, and I'm sure a few Google searches would show up a, a number of good examples. Yeah, maybe uh, I can add on this. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Seems. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to build on the first point because um, our program were destined for women. But then we started to segregate the data in terms of age, as she said. And we start developing programs for girls because we have seen how many girls want to attend women courses or women. So I think it's it's something very important. And uh, also uh, for me, when um, something uh, important, they said it will be to use all the leadership programs, but uh, long term programs also, uh, but with um, uh, how to. I, for, I love the word, but to marry him with traditional uh, uh, humanitarian uh, courses or um, knitting or anything. So women also have a safe place when they can discuss, when they can develop the, their own ideas. Because going directly, we have seen also this in terms of uh, uh, on the humanitarian sector, when we're talking about uh, participation is uh, inviting women without any preparation, without, uh, they have a huge potential, but they also need a safe place. I would very much recommend to build a trust uh, and build long-term mm -hmm. relationship. Uh I just want to add uh, um, on the same topic. I think one of the issues that we really need to, to look at the, at the gender and the age also is, is really critical in order to, to promote uh, and, and, uh, the gender equality within. Because uh, I think one of, the, one of the problem that we see in Afghanistan we don't have uh, proper data on uh, based on age, because the the need of a girl who is twelve year old compared to to her mother and also compared to her grandmother is completely different, including if we, when we look at the sanitation issue and sanitary whatever. I mean, I I don't like sanitary pad, but I I would like to say hygienic pad in issues related to those. Because particularly when they live in the camp and there's not enough facilities, they have really, really a lot of problem. And they, when they, there is a conservative um, family relation or conservative society relation, nobody's talking about their, their need and nobody giving them awareness about their, their body and about their needs uh, and, and to, to look at those issues not only for the girls, but for the boys also, but girls has their own, their own needs and, and requirements. 
Absolutely. Um, so we have two more questions here that are, are sort of linked. So I'm going to pose them to you together. The first from, comes from Carrie Holloway, who is a senior research officer in my team, HPG, who asks, how do we highlight the particular risks that women may experience in displacement without reinforcing stereotypes centered around victimhood and vulnerability? Are there examples where women's particular resources and strengths have also been highlighted in research and used in achieving durable solutions? So that's question number one. Question number two comes from Eve Small, a student at Manchester University, and she asks, could the panelists discuss how humanitarian intervention can sometimes reinforce victimhood? So anyone with something to offer on that, you're welcome to go ahead. Uh, it's not an easy question, I have to admit. Uh, I think uh, it, it actually depends on the on the location where they are, uh, where they come from, in our case in Afghanistan. Because in some places, there are women who has a stronger role within the society, within the family, so they, they are taking the lead and they are actually involved on some of the decision-making where to go and where to, how to, where to stay. Uh, because in, in Afghanistan, some of the people who are displaced, they're not going to the camp. They're going to their relative and then trying to establish their own livelihood. At the emergency situation, they go to their relative or somebody they know and use their room and shelter. And then they try to establish their own, uh, to stand on their own feet and then uh, to start their own livelihood with a lot of difficulties, but they are not waiting for humanitarian UN agencies or IOM or UNHCR to give them something in order to live. But in some, some communities, unfortunately, because a group of people came in the city and there was some rumor between them that the government is going to give them a piece of land and take care of them. And then, and then the, the rest of the family comes, the rest of the, the village comes and stay in the same camp in a very difficult situation. And that they are pushed to, to show that they are victim. Rather than, I don't know how to put it, uh, rather than they are, yes, they are victim, there's no doubt. But to highlight and make the victimhood too bold and then to, to not recognize their potential on positive changes within the, those setting, within those uh, um, camps or, or uh, facilities that they have. And that is some of uh, um, what I see, unfortunately. And the second point, I think, uh, what we see in Afghanistan, unfortunately, is always the, um, the corruption within the provision of the humanitarian service and misusing the uh, let's say it's not enough uh, security, so they try to to misuse that opportunity in order to benefit financially from those uh, those issues. Uh, so that is that's also something that we have to look at it, and that is reality. In the impunity, the continuation of impunity on those corruption, people know people knows it, but nobody is there to tackle because they have connection either with the local government with, with the some tribal 
leaders or warlords in our case. If I could jump in as well, I mean, I really think Carrie raises an important question, how to balance the very real needs that displaced women have with their strengths and agency and so forth. Um, and one thing we do know is that violence against women increases in displacement mm -hmm. settings, whether it's conflict or disaster, and those are real needs. We've known about them for 30 years. It's still going on in spite of all the guidelines and trainings and policies and books. The violence against displaced women, I think, is simply unacceptable. We need to find other ways and of ensuring that this doesn't continue. We need to do much more in preventing and working with male perpetrators and judicial forces and so on to hold people accountable. But I think we have to do that in concert with the recognition that displaced women themselves have a lot to offer in these situations and not to fall into just seeing women as victims. I remember in Colombia a few years ago, women were displaced women were so happy to be finally recognized as victims from that country's long and terrible conflict. I mean, they, they wanted to be victims because it was an acknowledgement of the pain and suffering they'd been through. Even though Colombian women's associations, IDP women's associations, are among the strongest in the world. And the, the role they played in the peace process mm -hmm with women is indeed a model that we can use. Um, but I think we need to hold that intention, women as survivors and actors, and also as having particular needs. Exactly. I think it's a, again, goes to the culture of that particular uh, countries, uh, even in, in Islamic countries, like, for example. Uh, what I see, the, the, the attitude of male towards women and also to um, on the freedom of movement in women and so on, compared to Sudan, for example, for example, and compared to Darfur, they are also conservative. But women in Sudan, in Darfur, I saw that they were able to sit in the market and sell their cheese or some vegetable until 10 p.m. before the curfew. But this is not going to happen in Afghanistan. It's very, very difficult for women to be um, in the market when the, the, with the, when it's dark or, or walk uh, in the camp freely uh, when, it's, when it's dark. So it's, it's very, you know, it, again, depend on the, on the culture and the, on the situation. Right. Uh, I will add on this only. It's also about the way uh, humanitarian also communicate about their programs, about always how we feature women in all the communication. You have the photo of poor women or victim women that is attract donation or so. So also there is all this image that has been created about women and uh, how they are lacking their own agency. So it's, it's about women in programs but also in the way it's communicating like we have been working with a lot of women teachers who are coming from camps so we have one idea about the women in camps so uh, they are only waiting for a humanitarian aid which is not true they are active they are teachers they can do a different stuff within the, their community or sometimes you can even find some of them who have uh, like high degrees but so uh, so it is something that we need the communication around it or humanitarian support uh, is um, very important. And I had a second point that 
uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Also, in terms of um, because Elizabeth mentioned uh, women participation, and from the Syrian cases, I I have seen uh, usually that we um, uh, women have been treated at two um, separated into two different kind of women. Uh, women inside the country or internally displaced and refugees that always need protection. And there is the other women who can participate on peace talk and ad hoc any really uh, so 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 I think yes yeah, so women in camps are always asked about their need never about their perspective and when they are asked about their perspective they are asked about their perspective on women issue as I said when women are speaking about the future of the children or anything else and have and proposing programs that are not destinating only for women no one is listening for them when they are proposing solution we just want to support a women project that are destinating for women um, because it's trendy. So I think we need to hear the women also outside only they're only seeing them as women working for women. No, they are part of their society and they can act uh, for their society as well. Those are all really powerful points and very well made. Thank you. Um, this is really great. So please keep the questions coming for um, anyone listening. We have another question that comes from Howard at CAFOD. And he asks, can the panelists share any positive or interesting examples of how they or their organizations have engaged with local faith leaders or other traditional leaders on addressing any gender related issues for IDPs in the context of forced displacement? In conflict contexts like Afghanistan and Syria, the government may have limited presence in some areas where people are forcibly displaced. And there could be space for more informal leaders that have influence. Uh, yes, I think, uh, again, it depends on the location of those displaced people, because uh, in some area where the, the people are, or the, even the faith leader or um, religious scholar, um, who is more open and willing to discuss the issue of women and the role of women and uh, the importance of inclusion of women in those policies. But in some uh, places, Again, it depends, even in Afghanistan, it depends from which location uh, uh, they come and which kind of mentality they have. So that is, uh, that is also uh, an issue. In some of the places, some of our, our uh, mullahs or our religious leaders are really promoting this issue. For example, in Bamiyan, for, uh, in Bamiyan province, we can use easily the religious leader in order to promote um, the gender issue and the and woman inclusion and the on this decision making in pro promoting women's rights actually, but in some of the unfortunately in some of the very conservative part of the country, like in Uruzgan, sometimes you you don't feel that the women are visible or women does exist because it's it's very very close, and uh, they use this uh, uh, woman freedom or women's women movement um, in relation to their honor. So they think if women are getting education and walk around, it's, it's, it's harm or our honor. I mean, the men honor uh, or the leader of the family or the leader of the community sometimes. So that is also um, the negative impact of, of those kind of people. But I think the religious leader leaders can play a very, very strong role, at least in our, in our condition, in our 
political, social um, dynamic in Afghanistan. And just to add it from another region, the, I think the churches and Christian communities in El Salvador have done a phenomenal job in working with internally displaced people, including women. You know, an issue that isn't popular, it's politically risky, and yet desperate people everywhere seem to turn to faith communities in difficult situations. Okay, so um... <laughs> In Syria, uh, most of the people of most of the internet, all, all, yeah, I will say all the internally displaced, unfortunately, are fleeing the, the government itself. So they are fleeing into areas that are under uh, armed grouped. Uh, uh, so, so which means that this area are also under the control of arms. So there is no state there. So um, making connections with. Uh, with armed groups is quite difficult, I would say. However, we have seen in Syria women groups contacting local councils, uh, trying to, to work with local councils in some in some issue. Uh, so yeah, but I, I don't have something specific in mind, but I have one specific project in Lebanon that for me it's kind of very close to internally displaced. Uh, when we supported a campaign led by women and girls, mainly Syrian, but also Lebanese and Palestinian, against the child marriage, they chose the campaign and they led it. And for us, this campaign was such as I think it was one of the biggest uh, success for us because it was led by the women and girls themselves from the camps most of them uh, from the camps, and they choose to connect uh, and to contact uh, religious leaders and to film with them and to discuss their story with them. And it has been a useful tactic that has been chosen by the women and girls themselves. So uh, after six months of the campaign, their target was to have the signature of 500 family joining their cause. Uh, they ended up with 1,100 family uh, joining the cause. Uh, so I think for us here, I'm, seeing, I'm, I'm answering different question about the potential because I know all of our organization have been working against child marriage and I never been able or I think together 1000 family against uh, around, uh, around the, the cause. So it is the, uh, the potential of the women and girls and also the tactic they are using. And yes, contacting local leaders was one of the tactics. And even the local uh, the local municipality that are made of Lebanese. And so, yes, creating all this interruption has been very useful. When it's used by the women themselves, I will, I will very much stress this point because sometimes us humanitarian, when we enter a country that we don't know, sometimes due to corruption, due to multiple conditions, we, uh, we don't know how to do it. Excellent, thank you. So we have another question um, coming from, and apologies in advance for probably mispronouncing this, but Deeb Majid Khanma, can you please explain what we mean by durable solutions for internally displaced people? We have a more robust understanding of what that means for refugees, but what does durable solutions mean for IDPs? I might take that. Um, yeah, traditionally there are three durable solutions for IDPs, which parallel, but are actually quite different than the situation for refugees. There's return to the community of origin. There is settlement in the place of displacement or settlement elsewhere in the country. You know, so there, there are 
three different solutions, all of which require different things from the host communities and from the IDPs and often the political will of the government. Great, I'm gonna move forward. We have a question from Kay Bird. And I wonder if we've maybe lost Seema again, but she'll join us hopefully. Um, and this question is looking at displaced people in global context, for example, within Southeastern Africa, where the long run complex political emergencies have forced people from their homes. Some displaced people have been reabsorbed into the wider population with those remaining in displaced persons camps tending to be the most severely poor and lacking access to resources. What should our research focus on where internal displacement is long run and associated with social and political exclusion? Uh, I can jump in again. I, I'm going to make a real plea for some longitudinal research. You know, most of the research we have now is kind of snapshot. We go into a particular situation or local researchers survey a population at one particular moment in time. But we know that situations change. So really would encourage research that looks at the same people over time, you know, whether it's every six months for four years or something to really understand how needs, resources, intentions change over time. You know, I think that holds whether people are living in camps or when they're more dispersed in a community, when there are different stages of their displacement. Some longitudinal research Georgetown did with IOM on Northern Iraq, looked at the same IDPs for about four and a half or five years. And what we found was a lot of movement. And we found that even though most IDPs hadn't returned to their communities, they were moving closer. So they might move you know, in, in a similar neighborhood and you could kind of see a progression toward a solution. And maybe to um, build on the response earlier, you know, a, a durable solution isn't an endpoint, it's a process. You don't stop being an IDP one day to the next. The international definition says it's when you stop having needs related to your displacement and are on a par with the population that hasn't been displaced, but that doesn't happen overnight. You know, if you move back to your home country, home community, it can take a while before those needs related to your displacement are, are, are met and you feel like you're fully integrated and are not experiencing discrimination. In addition to the research, I think what we really need is real advocacy. I think uh, we, uh, any, there is some good research that's coming out about internally displaced, but I don't think there is enough political will to move forward with the results. So I think we need very strong advocacy to support the actual uh, results. Seema, I'm not sure if you caught the question, but you're welcome to jump in if you no. did. Sorry, I, the electricity was off, so I couldn't get the question. Fine. Um, well, the question was, was about what should we focus on where, where internal displacement is long run and associated with long-term social and political exclusion. Uh, I think there's a, I don't know if I'm too, uh, too, I, idealistic um, I think it's it's also the security council should really uh, stop this double standard you know because they are um, 
they're taking different approach on different conflicts and which is, um, I see the conflict is the main cause of the displacement because conflict really don't really give the possibility to look at disaster management or disaster um, prevention, um, displacement from disaster in, the, in the countries like us. Uh, that is one issue. And the second issue, I think uh, our focus should be more uh, based on human rights and protection of human dignity rather than our political agenda. That is not there, honestly, uh, because of the uh, um, political competition between the superpower. Superpowers. I mean, you can see, I can see in my in our neighboring country, people are dying from the hunger, but they are making atomic bombs. So the kind of a um, conflict within the region and distrust between the, the, the countries and neighboring countries. So that, that's why I think somehow the United Nations maybe as a, um, as a leading country to really promote the um, uh, human rights-based approach for a better sustainable peace. And then the connection between the, the nexus between the conflict, resolution, development, and peace should be really connected to each other. And that cannot be done if we don't respect the human rights and the human dignity. If, if our focus is not based on respecting human dignity and human rights, and that is not going to work, unfortunately. Yeah, very well said. Um, this next question actually builds on that very well. And I, I feel like we're drawing out a lot of common themes here. This comes from Beatrice Mosello, who's a senior advisor at Adelphi. And um, this, this question, it's directed to Beth, but I think it might be good for all of us. She says, Beth highlighted the need for development actors to be also involved if long-term solutions to issues of land and property and others like water and sanitation are to be put in place. Can the speakers share some examples of programs that were able to do this and reflect on what made this possible, enabled them, or, or what we can learn from them? Maybe I'll start. I mean, there has been a push to include internally displaced people in national development plans to access development funding. We see a new role for the World Bank, which is really pushing a much more development approach to internal displacement. I think in the long term, that's the way we need to go. I mean, humanitarians really to pull out of these situations um, so that development actors can do what they do best. There are some good examples where this happened, has happened. Somalia, for example, has incorporated internal displacement into its development plan. They've engaged kind of a whole of government approach where there are lots of different ministries and agencies that are involved. They've been able to um, really with some support from the UN, the UN resident coordinator established a durable solutions unit, really focusing on solutions for IDPs within the government in ways that took this seriously. I mean, I, I think you really need two things. You've got to have the political will of the government to do something mm -hmm. about 
change. And here you see a difference, say, between Colombia and Syria or Myanmar or governments that don't seem particularly interested in looking at long-term solutions and governments that are willing to do something but maybe don't know where to start or how to, you know, so you need different approaches for supporting governments either to push them to take this seriously or to support those who may not have the capacity or technical expertise to set up the right mechanisms. And that's where I think international actors can play a role. International actors haven't done a very good job in encouraging governments to take responsibility for their own populations. And there I would echo Seema's comment about the kind of failure of the Security Council to prevent and resolve these conflicts in the, in the first place, which have caused so much displacement and suffering. Um, yes, if I can uh, can jump in, uh, there is a very good positive, very good example in Jalalabad, in one of the provinces in Afghanistan. Uh, particular, it was not really focused only on the on the uh, internally displaced people, but it is it was for the returnees. So uh, there was a Japanese uh, doctor who unfortunately was killed last year. Last year. In, in Afghanistan or this year at the beginning of the year. Uh, he actually turned a whole village to green uh, place and, and uh, people were uh, really a better livelihood for the people uh, because he used the, the water, the, the, the river and really um, made that place a, a very different place from all over Afghanistan. So that was a very good example rather than in, in the other places. And that could be implemented in different parts of the country. But unfortunately, again, in, in my country, it's the, the question of ethnicity, it's the question of, of uh, different ethnic group and different provinces. The majority is one ethnic and the other ethnic. So there's a lack of mistrust on those issues. But if there's a strong political will, I think that it has also solution because we have rivers, we have deserts, which is, which is just in tea. And the, the, if the, there's a political will for the government, they can really relocate people in those places and give them some basic uh, support uh, for water supply and the people can make uh, a living out of it and make it green, but it should be done with a strong political will without causing a lot of uh, ethnic tension. Okay, um, our next question, unless Maria wants to come in, but otherwise we can move along. So our next question, um, well, it was inevitable we get to a funding question, right? So how can we build support? This is from Madison that will highlight the nexus between humanitarian and peace building efforts. Donors can be open to supporting women's groups and feminist activities and humanitarian donors are geared towards life-saving activities. So how can we build momentum amongst donors for funding nexus work? I think <laughs> if there's a political will, they can coordinate properly. But uh, when we see uh, mainly in Afghanistan, again, I'm, I'm Sorry that I'm really focusing in my own country too much. Um, the supporting feminist groups or uh, women's group is very, very small compared to overall issue. Even in the conferences when they, they held the donor conferences for Afghanistan, 
and the pledging conferences for Afghanistan, then the women's issue is always side event. And that is a problematic. Why it should be side event? It should be part of the overall event and they should be included uh, as a half of the population and, and a very important part of the population. Yeah, and with the impact that they have on socioeconomic and cultural um, political situation of a country. So we have to, to move women from women's issues and gender issue from a side event within the center of every event. And that can be done by both humanitarian and, and developmental feminist, whatever. Um, yeah, I think Madison's raised a really important point, and that is the role of donors in this whole system. And I've spent a lot of time working on the institutional architecture for dealing with IDPs, clusters, and various UN coordination mechanisms. But when you have donors funding different parts of the process, with different pots of money, it gets really difficult. For example, in a lot of countries, there's a lot of money for stabilization programs. Stabilization programs can have a big impact on IDP's ability to return, but the coordination with working with humanitarian and other development actors is sometimes missing. And I really think we need some kind of collaborative mechanisms within donor agencies or within governments. Even in the United States, we've got different government departments working on humanitarian, on development, on peace, on stabilization. You know, sometimes in the government, people don't talk to each other, much less than when they give funds to support work in the field. It's no wonder things aren't, aren't very coordinated. So, I mean, I think that that would be a wonderful change to come about. There would be more coordination and a lessening role of silos within donor governments and an understanding of how these things are really all joined up. But the other thing, you know, everybody, I think I've been to meetings on humanitarian issues for 30 years, and every single one seems to say we need more coordination. You know, if we recognize it's a need, it's difficult to do. It takes time. All of these meetings take time. And at least on the humanitarian side, we'd much rather be doing things and delivering relief and not going to more meetings of clusters and interclusters and subclusters and so on. You know, so there's, I think, the kind of people that enjoy our call to do this kind of work or maybe less patient with the bureaucratic needs to ensure some kind of coordination, but we're seeing the results of that lack of coordination now. And I hope that's one thing, frankly, that the high level panel can do, can come up with an easy way to have a more coordinated or comprehensive approach instead of all these piecemeal, often well-meaning, but piecemeal interventions. Well, if I, if I, um, if I jump in again, uh, Bat, you, you are involved on, on policy meeting, but I been involved on trying to convince some donors to give me $10,000 for this specific work for women. Uh, I, I see that uh, as a big problem. And I wish, I hope, I hope that the donors uh, beside the coordination uh, also focused on, uh, again, feminist approach to to the issues, because um, uh, yes, sometimes they're talking about women's rights, but again, they go for corporate weaving for women in order to empower them. Yes, it's it's better than nothing, but it's really hard work compared to the income that the people have. So we should not really 
only go on traditional female kind of a job and, and uh, income generation programs. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So if I can jump on with different also observation, um, I totally agree. Sometimes we can be funded by the same country, but two different ministry and having two different, <laughs> yes, uh, which is quite, uh, make things uh, quite complicated. Uh, and the whole approach will be very, very different. Uh, in terms of supporting women group, uh, I think something important Actually, what have we have seen so far is most of the donors, when they are funding women groups, are doing this to just a checklist kind of to empower the groups, not really believing on the role of the groups. I think that is something important uh, that we need to take into account. Secondly, even the what the women group I asked for is ready to build peace in six months while the huge uh, international organization will have a three years fund with programs with a lot of administrative costs, the small movement group will be overwhelmed with operations with, um, they will not only, they will need to have solutions, programmatic solutions for the problem uh, on the ground. And secondly, they will be overwhelmed with all the operations, especially with country uh, like Syria and maybe Afghanistan, when we have sanctions, when we have to deal with all the stuff to get the fund into the groups. Yani, I, I, oh, yani, my, uh, my colleagues sometimes went under bombs to deliver, uh, mm -hmm. to deliver yeah. the trainings or under that, and it will be yani, more complicated for us to channel the money to them. Uh, because of all the bank and all the operations uh, limitation. So I think we really need to, to take all the, the operations and the over compliance system of the banks and the donors community when we are talking about women and local group. But however, there is something positive that we have seen in the last few years, which is feminist fund. They are small, but they are very effective. And I think we need to share more and more lesson from this feminist fund that are could be a real solutions and the thank you i i feel like we're hitting at some some topics that i'm really interested in and so i um and our next question does too and i'm going to turn to maria first on this one um because i'm really interested to hear more about what the role of women's rights organizations can be you know we've just been touching on it but beyond the funding question and then we have a question from Jess Sharman, who's a student at the University of Manchester, asking, is there a way in which women who are scared to speak out about their needs within the camps can be encouraged, provided a safe space to speak and protected from implications of using their voice? Um, what support systems are present for them? So I'd like to hear, especially from Maria, given your, your, your background, your work with Women Now for Development on that one. Yeah, so um, our model was always to establish women centers that are all local. So women will felt their, uh, their safe place. And even they will choose some of the training and they will. So uh, I think when there is this situation of women uh, having some difficulties to express themselves, we need to build trust and this need times. So also we need, so I don't think in terms of immediate needs, they will, I think, no, they will not be shy to speak about that. But in terms of really um, being part of any solution or discussing, we need to, I would say, trust having safe places 
when they can come and uh, meet and discuss, uh, having traditional training, but also other activities uh, that take into account uh, their priorities. Uh, as I give the example of the child marriage or even campaigns against bombardment of civilians, we have seen the women of the center launching different amazing campaigns uh, about. So not only speaking out, but leading campaigns and even writing letters to the international community. Some of them asked for English courses to be able to address international community. So they also have a huge dream and uh, they want to be uh, art. In terms of the role of uh, women rights organization, I think we have the responsibility always to make sure that the women are there and their voice uh, is listened to. And it is something that even when we are building all our programs, it is always done in consultations, effective consultation that could be sometimes which the next training, but also what is the plan for next year, or uh, how you have seen this, how you are, how you went through the siege, how in also keeping the conversation going and to have their voice and when they can, and especially now with this um, uh, international international discussion going through online sessions, I think it's very important that because most of the time women internally displaced doesn't have any voice because they don't have paper, we cannot have visa for them. So now I think we have this responsibility to have translation. So as technical point also, so when we have, so they can attend this kind of meeting and also uh, echo their voice by themselves. Mm -hmm. All right, I'll open it up to Beth and Seema, but under the understanding we're running out of time. So keep it brief. If you have something to add on women's rights organizations and encouragement and safety for women to use their voices. I think it's really important to include women's rights organizations and have them take up some of the issues around displaced women. I mean, that happened in Liberia when the peace process was going on. It was women's organizations, not refugee or displaced women's organizations, but women's rights organizations that took on the particular needs of refugees and IDPs and represented them in that peace process. We need more examples of that. I think that's really important. There are mechanisms in a lot of settings for individuals to file complaints about the way aid is being provided or isn't being provided, those seem to work much better in camp situations again and when women are really dispersed among the communities. So I think finding some kind of feedback mechanisms to ensure that women's concerns are raised at that very granular level are needed in those urban and non-urban non-camp settings. Uh, well, I think in, in our case, I think it's key for, for uh, promoting the human rights in, of, women's, of women in the country. Uh, I would say that the role that we played on uh, even the changing of the constitution and also uh, um, advocating for, uh, for uh, criminalization of domestic violence in Afghanistan was key. And still, they, we are playing the, uh, I, I'm saying we because I'm also claiming that I'm also one of the human rights activists or women, human rights defender in the country. If we keep quiet, nobody will listen to us. So I think it is really key for not only for raising the, the issue of women's rights and changing the legislation in the country and also on the implementation in raising the voice of, uh, let's say, the one who doesn't have a lot of access to to raise their voice, including the IDP women and also the returnees. 
in Nansuri in, in the very rural uh, conservative part of the country. Excellent. Okay. So with apologies to the other questions, because we're not going to be able to get to all of them, I'm going to turn to our, our final lightning round and you're each going to get, well, it's supposed to be one minute, but bonus points if it's less than a minute, because we're racing against the clock here to tell us what you think one concrete thing we can do that needs to happen to ensure gender is a fundamental part of any durable solutions. So keeping it very, very short, we'll start with uh, Maria. <laughs> okay, are we deferring? Okay, Beth. <laughs> My number one thing would be to use displaced women's associations and organizations to raise these issues and peace processes, whatever peace process exists, whether it's talks in Afghanistan or if it's mobilizing support. But I think women need to be part of the solution to the conflicts and not just part of the solution to the displacement. Um, yes, I think the human rights-based approach would be the solution for everything. And that is also inclusion of, of women in every level of policy or peace process or, or uh, planning or um, policy making for, for uh, IDPs or non-IDPs. Great, Maria? Well, I don't have anything to add as other really changing the narrative from protecting women to including women perspective in all solutions. So it has already been said that I would repeat this but it needs to be said again. So thank you for that. All right. Well, I want to thank the panel for joining us today and for a really excellent conversation. And I want to thank everyone who sent in questions and comments for engaging with us today. As I mentioned earlier, HPG has a new report on gender roles and in communities displaced in Pakistan. So please do check that out. Um, Sarah's sharing it in the chat and um, share it with your networks and keep an eye out for future reports from this research project. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation, so I hope everyone else has as well. And thanks again, and have a great afternoon, evening, wherever you are. Thank you very much. Thank you Thank also you. to the organizer. Thanks, great initiative. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.